Good morning. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 22. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, all, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. So much theater. Uh, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It is a joy to be with you this morning in the event that you somehow missed uh, Emma's reading, we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes for all of chapter 3. And just by way of reminder, the Word of God was meant to be heard. And so 22 verses sounds like a lot. We were originally going to be going into Nehemiah this spring, and one of the chapters is 73 verses. So have some perspective as we cover several chapters at once in Ecclesiastes. For example, next week we're covering all of chapter 3. 
4. Uh, while you open or load your Bible, got a couple of things for you. Number one, uh, if you are new, uh, we would love to hang out with you or simply have the opportunity to pray for you. And so fill out a Connect card or do us the favor of, of filling out a Connect card and submitting it in the Connect desk. One of our staff team members will get with you this week. In addition to that, as you can tell, we love to preach from God's Word. Uh, therefore, we love to gift God's Word. So if you do not have a Bible, let us hook you up with one. That would be our gift to you. Final reminder, because obviously we have a lot of text to cover this morning. Uh, if you are registered or looking to register for baby dedications, parents, next week, Right after service today, uh, we're going to be having this mini class slash meeting, maybe 30, 45 minutes tops, talking about what to expect for next week. If you have any questions concerning that class or registration uh, or our time afterwards, you can talk to Elsie, who's not too far in front of me. Uh, she is our kids director, and so she will hook you up with more detail on that. That's all I have. You guys ready? All right, here we go. Well, in 1973, the famous prophets of Pink Floyd once wrote about time. I don't think this is up on the screen, so you just get to listen. Tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. You are young and life is long and there is time to kill today. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run, you missed the starting gun. If that's a little too far back for you, or if Pink Floyd was simply not your jam, then maybe the words of Dr. Seuss may be of better comfort to you. Dr. Seuss went on to say, how did it get so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? This morning, as we jump into Ecclesiastes 3, we're going to be considering time. But before we dive into that, this book, uh, by way of review, is written by King Solomon, where he, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, forces us to confront the realities and complexities about life. This book is a hard book, but it is an honest book. This book gives us a perspective into what we could consider his personal memoirs. As you read through Ecclesiastes, as we walk through Ecclesiastes, there is nothing said about Israel. There is nothing about the history of God's people. This is all about life experience and the seasons that we will encounter. This book is a look at the paradox of life. That is, a life with a great mix of frustration and fruit sorrow and sweetness. Solomon is going to direct us to consider the sovereignty of God in relation to time. And what we will discover is that although the sovereignty of God can be a challenge for you and I, it doesn't mean that God isn't good and it doesn't mean that he isn't trustworthy. Solomon will reflect on questions, really good questions, questions that I'm sure you have had or are considering at the present. Some of those questions are going to be answered, while others will not be answered, dot, 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 yet, or in this lifetime. Therefore, let us consider the sovereignty of God 
in relation to time this morning. Let me pray, and we will bust out Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 22, all of it. All right, here we go. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for a morning such as this, where we get to come together as your people, as your children, and praise the goodness of your name. Father, we ask that through today's text, you by your spirit would teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. God, as we look at Ecclesiastes, to those who know Jesus, may they come to know him better this morning. God, if there are those who do not know Jesus, may they come to know him today. In all of this, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, we're going to try to break this up into three sections. The first one is we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. The opening of this chapter begins with a poem. This poem is often quoted at funerals, and its opening provides us with the heart of the chapter. For Solomon writes, for everything there is a season. That's a good word, season. It sounds better than the word balance. The word balance is too much of a buzzword nowadays, and that's the last thing you want to think about when you are in a season of intensity or despair. For instance, some of you who are students, and it's finals week, and you got to work through a bunch of things. The last thing you want somebody to tell you is, you just need to have balance. No, it is a season of intense study, focus, and concentration. Or perhaps if you have experienced loss and you're in a season of despair, you don't want someone to say, you just need to balance your life out in the midst of what you just experienced. No, it is a season of loss and despair. Saying it that way helps us to remember that this is but only a season. In this poem, Solomon is going to provide us with the facts about life, not the show, but he's going to provide us with the facts about life using 14 pairs of seasons with their opposites. And his attempt is to think and consider time. So I want to look at three things that this poem expresses. The first is that this is a poem about life in a fallen world. Solomon walks us through a variety of seasons that at one point or another we will all share. The goal here is not to give reasons as to what is just or unjust, such as war or killing, but simply to speak plainly and factually about the season of life. And because we will experience a variety of seasons in our life, as verses 1 through 8 suggest, because we will experience a variety of seasons in our life, we are reminded that these seasons must be accompanied by wisdom. Wisdom to know what kind of a season we are in and how to walk through that season. Pastor and author Zach Eswine says it this way, Many of our frustrations rise from our blindness to the change of season or to the pain or joy of them, and we struggle to adjust our expectations. All of these seasons that Solomon writes about are a reminder that we live life in a fallen world. 
Many of these experiences, as an example, did not even exist before the fall of Adam and Eve. Therefore, we need wisdom to live throughout this fallen world. Secondly, this poem tells us about the experiences that you and I will confront or enjoy at some point in our time here on earth. We're going to go through them. He opens by saying, a time to be born and a time to die. At the very least, one thing that all of us share in common is our birth. When it comes to our birth and our death, two things that we have no control over. A time to plant and a time to pluck up. A time to kill and a time to heal. To break down and to build up. Some of them have a variety of what you would consider interpretations. So when you look at something like breaking down or building up, perhaps it could be said that it is a time where we destroy and put down our idols. And the other side of it is where we grow in our relationship with God as we put them down. There is a time for weeping. Over the last two and a half years, I have either attended or done the eulogy of at least 12 funerals. There's a lot of weeping at funerals, in case you didn't know. But in addition to that, there's also a time to laugh. Think about the last time you laughed so hard, your abs were hurting. There is a time for that. There is a time to mourn. And there is a time, and some of you may not be down, there's a time to dance. That's right. It's in the Bible. There is a time to dance. If you don't like that, it's probably because you don't know how to dance. I'd rather you just say, I don't know how to dance. That's why I don't like it. Nobody's telling you to, right? Nevertheless, there's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. And the idea behind some of these seasons and some of these activities is, for instance, if we laugh together, we never know, uh, we might never know that this might be the last time we laugh together, right? When you consider weeping and dancing, sometimes some of those dance partners you end up losing later on in life. There's a time for that. He, cont- he continues, there's a time to cast away stones and to gather stones. This one, this one particular season has a variety of interpretations. We could say it this way when he says to cast away stones. This means to cultivate a field like a farmer or to ruin someone in a time of war. A time to gather stones, this could be a time as you build your home, whether it's your first home that you're bought or the family that you're growing. This could also mean it's a time to fortify your city. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Many of us have experienced this just throughout the pandemic that is COVID-19. I remember, uh, when was it? At one point, like all of the restrictions were lifted in the middle of the pandemic in 2020. It was before Governor Abbott like shut everything down again six weeks later. And so a few of us went out to hang out at Roosevelt. There were some people who were there saying, it's over, we beat it, we beat it. And everybody was like hugging and laughing and dancing. It felt like this is a time to embrace because it's been three months since we've done that. Some of you have experienced longer seasons. Some of you know 
back in January, my mom passed away, there was a time to refrain from embracing, that that was going to be the last time. There's a time to seek and a time to lose, whether it's time to pursue or time to let things go. A time to keep or, or to cast away. Keeping could be saving, something like a savings fund, right? Something like investment, like kind of like the ant does in, in harvest time, where they are looking to save and, and apply wisdom to it, but then there's a time to relinquish control of all of it. A time to tear, that could be a time of mourning, uh, and that is personal mourning in, in the sense of like your sin has been made known to you, you are convicted by your sin, and so what we see in the Old Testament is when individuals are convicted of their sin or the sins of their people, they tear away their clothes because they are mourning over their sin. There is a time to sow, that is a time to invest in one another. A time to be silent, a time to speak. We see this in the life of Jesus. For instance, when Jesus was on trial with the Sanhedrin, he said not a word. Yet in the life of his public ministry, he did not withhold from speaking to the religious leaders or having lunch with sinners. There's this painting at this burger place in Denton, Texas. I lived in Denton for a season, and it's called LSA Burger. And when you walk into LSA Burger, it's this ginormous painting of the Last Supper. And it is Jesus at the center of the supper. And, uh, and what you see is all of like Texas singers who have died, from Selena to, to Freddie Fender. All these singers are at the table. They represent the disciples. And at this table, you see Jesus cracking up among these Texas singers. I would imagine that's kind of what the Last Supper looked like at some point. But nevertheless, even when he had lunch with sinners, you can, he, was, he was goofing sometimes. There's a time to love and hate. Scripture tells us that we are to love what God loves, but that we are also to hate what God hates. The Apostle Paul to the Romans says it this way, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. There's a time for war, and there's also a time for peace. The Bible doesn't shy away from any of that. When you read through the book of Joshua, we see a war happening and the walls of Jericho falling. In addition to that, when you go to the New Testament, you see a time of peace that through the work of Jesus Christ, the wall of division between Jew and Gentile has been torn down and removed. It's all of these seasons that we experience that often leave us with questions. More questions that we'd like to admit sometimes. And if we're honest, because we're not always going to understand everything, that is what keeps us from fully trusting and committing to God. In this poem, Solomon doesn't say anything about God. He doesn't tell us what to do yet. He is simply putting it all on the table. We can think of it this way. This poem is a primer for principles about God and time. The seasons of life that we will all encounter are captured in this poem as Solomon reflects on everything from our existence to our emotions, to all of our human activity. And so with that being said, the poem, once again, it primes us for principle. So now we're going to consider verses 9 through 22. Beginning in verse 9, this section 
opens up with a question, and it, if we're honest, it leaves us with more questions. In other words, well, what do we do with the poem, though? <laughs> yeah, it may have primed us, cool, I guess, but what do we do with it? Well, this section is going to provide us with the explanations uh, and thoughts of his question. In this section, you're also going to notice that there's a change. See, in the poem, as I mentioned earlier, he doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention our relationship to him. But in a shift, he now very quickly and to a great degree writes about God and directs us to his sovereignty over time, beginning with verse 9, asking the question, where am I? I'm already lost. Anyway, that's not the question he asks. Verse 9, what gain has the work from his toil? In other words, he's asking the question, what's the profit of this life? What's the point? If we're going to experience all of these seasons, what's my profit? What's my gain? I want you to think about the sovereignty of God for a moment. That is, I want you to think and consider about God's rulership over creation. That's the distinction. That's the distinction, isn't it? Creator and creation. In order for there to be creation, there must be a source of existence. And God is that being. Someone that exists outside of time while at the same time overseeing and governing all of time and overseeing all of creation. So for a moment, consider the sovereignty of God. As you do so, in light of the poem, we should very quickly learn that nothing happens outside of God's will. God has a fitting time for all of our moments, occasions, and opportunities. And because Jesus entered into human history, we can see evidence of that in Jesus' birth. Jesus' time to be handed over to the officials. Over and over again, he tells his disciples, my time has not come yet. But eventually he says, the time has come. Jesus' time to die falls under God's sovereignty. Paul to the Romans once more in chapter 5, verse 6, I think he says, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. God has a fitting time for all of our moments and occasions and opportunities. One writer says it this way, they, referring to the activities from the poem, they are divine actions before they become human activities. We cannot think about the sovereignty of God mechanically. And some of us might. But the truth is, when we begin to consider the sovereignty of God, we see God's fatherly care for his creation. And so verses 10 through 22, are going to provide us with five principles concerning the sovereignty of God. So let's look at the first one. 
Because God is sovereign, we can trust him. This is in verses 10 and 11. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Because God is sovereign, we can trust him. There is comfort in trusting God because not everything is burdensome in our life. There is beauty also. Additionally, we're not going to know everything. And just because you don't know everything doesn't make God not good. David Gibson writes it this way. This means that part of growing up in the world is learning to grow small. God intends us to be like children who trust their parents to know what is best because they can see what the children can't see. And they know what the children are not yet able to know. And here's the thing. The relationship of trust is built on the character of the parents. If the parents are good and wise and kind, then the child who cannot see the end from the beginning has nothing to fear. So what does trusting God mean? When you consider verses 10 and 11, what does trusting God mean? I mean, on one hand, it means waiting on God. That's what the word fitting, when he says there is a time for everything, a translation of that could be there is a fitting time for everything. Rather than controlling your own agenda or scheduling while criticizing God's time, the real question is, are you willing to put your time in God's hands? David says it this way, my times are in your hands. Can you pray that? Is your time really a controlling issue? Where you are overwhelmed, consumed by control. Can you wait on God? Additionally, what it means by trusting God is that we redeem our time. So one of the things that we looked at in the series before Ecclesiastes was an entire sermon just on time. So I'll let you go back to that so you can check it out. But Morgan Freeman said it best, get busy living or get busy dying. What you do in this life matters. Time is always hard to manage and oversee, right? There's a reason there's so many books written about productivity and time management and personal leadership and to-do lists and so many different kinds of apps to better organize yourself because time is just hard to manage. No matter how organized you are, time is hard to manage. Therefore, fixing your eyes on what glorifies God or enjoying the goodness of God is of great significance. Paul says it this way to the Ephesians. This is actually the text that we looked at on the Sermon on Time. He says, look carefully then how you walk. That word walk means how we live our life, the way in which we are with others. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. That phrase can be rendered to redeem time because the days are evil. In other words, 
We live in a fallen world. Moments that you and I have, when they are spent, we can't get them back. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And we learn more about the will of God through God's word. As we are shaped by God's word, as we spend time in God's word. So we redeem our time. Solomon also writes that God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. I mentioned earlier that we all have longings. C.S. Lewis writes that they are not random longings. These are not random desires. Rather, these desires are a longing for Eden. They're a longing for what was. These desires that you have, these uh, longings that you have, have been intentionally put in you by God. However, if we simply set our desires and longings only for this life, then we will constantly end up with frustration and disappointment. The longings that you and I have are not random, but they are meant to be satisfied by and in Jesus. So do you have a control issue? The idea of this, and we're going to look at it in just a moment, the idea of how we live our lives is proving ground for our character and what we believe about God. So number two, because God is sovereign, we can trust him. Number two, Solomon tells us that because God is sovereign, we can enjoy God. This is verses 12 and 13. The season that you and I find ourselves in right now, I want you to think about that. I don't know what season you're in. The season that you and I find ourselves in right now is meant to reveal our true character. Right now. It's not random. The season that we're in is meant to reveal our true character. It reveals whether or not we trust God. Because interestingly enough, there is capacity for us to enjoy God in one of two ways, if not both. And he says it here, beginning in verse 12, I perceived, and you're going to see a lot of this language in this section. He's reflecting on both what he's done and what he has learned. And so he begins by saying, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. So the first way in which we enjoy God is by doing good, by pursuing righteousness, serving others, ministering to others, helping others, discipling one another, hanging out. It's kind of foreign to some of y'all, right? But nevertheless, Micah 6, 8 says, he has told you, oh man, if you've ever wondered, man, what is it that God wants me to do? How can I actually enjoy God? I get it to glorify him forever. What does that mean? Well, he has a word for us in Micah 6. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's one of the first things in which we enjoy God by serving others. It's interesting that Solomon arrives at this conclusion. Remember, chapter one and two, we saw him dive into a variety of life experiments. And his pursuits were selfish, self-centered, and prideful. And here he's reaching to the conclusion, man, the way in which we're going to enjoy God and one of the ways in which we're going to find meaning in life is by serving others. 
He continues in verse 13. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. How do we enjoy God? Through pursuing righteousness and recreation. That's right, recreation. You should enjoy your life, right? This is one of the enjoyment passages. See, the work that you've been given is a gift from God, and it's to be enjoyed. So what's your thing? Enjoy it today. If your thing is cooking, go cook an awesome meal. I don't know what your thing is. Enjoying your work and the fruit of your work is a gift that is to be celebrated, a gift that directs you to the goodness of God for you. So because God is sovereign, we can enjoy God through pursuing righteousness and pursuing recreation. Now, it's interesting when we talk about recreation, we're like, well, I don't really know what to do. I don't go find some hobbies or something, right? Like, I don't know how often you hear about pursuing recreation in a church setting, but it's biblical. Go pursue recreation. Number three, because not only are we to embrace the comfort of trusting God, not only are we to enjoy God, but because God is sovereign over all of creation, we are to fear God. This is verses 14 and 15. Here's that word again, I perceived. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That, it, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God, I like this, God seeks what has been driven away. At its core, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. That's the, that's the genre in the Bible that it finds itself in. And the fear of the Lord is a central theme in wisdom literature. When you read Proverbs and um, Song of Songs, and you read uh, Psalms itself, Lamentations, those are all wisdom literature. And I often get asked about the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. What does it actually mean? Wednesday night, I went out to dinner with some friends, and that was the, the part of our conversation. What does the fear of God or the fear of the Lord actually mean? That's one of the questions I get. And oftentimes, I'll get a response like, is it awe? Is it reverence? Is it honor? Is it justice? Is it God's obedience? And my answer, in case you were wondering, is yes. And I would add fear. That is, the fear of the Lord is encompassed by all of those things, yes, but it is also fearing God. That is literally why it is translated that way. It's not trying to soften it. That is the translation. Meaning that God is who he says he is and that God will follow through with what he says he will follow through with. That's what it means to fear God. If a lion was in front of you, would you just revere the lion? No, you're going to tremble. You're not going to just revere the lion because there's this 400-pound animal that can take you down, right? One author says it this way, that the fear of God is a trembling trust. The fear of God is realizing that God is who he says he is, and you are not him. 
Listen to the wisdom of Father uh, Kavanaugh from uh, the movie Rudy that was released in 1993. Here's what he says, right? Rudy's like, man, I want to get into Notre Dame. Maybe I should pray more. What do you think is going on? He's like so confused about his season. And, uh, and here's what he says. Son, in 35 years of religious study, and some of you who have seen this movie, you can picture the, the chapel that they're in. Son, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. It's a really good movie. Anyway. What still leaves the question, well, what does it mean for us to fear God, I suppose, in the context of Ecclesiastes? Well, he's kind of given us a little way around it. It means that what God does lasts forever. What we do doesn't. And so a good question for you to reflect on is, are you spending too much time, or any time for that matter, trying to be God yourself? Additionally, it means that God has the last word on injustice. That God is the one who's going to balance the scales of justice. That even though we cannot alter the nature of this world, God will bring everything into the light and injustice will receive its final judgment. That little line at the end of verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away. That is, that imagery, that language is that of a shepherd who drives away all of the injustice and is ultimately the one that has judgment on it, that he will execute what is needed. And this thought carries on into the next section. So, so far we have looked at because God is sovereign, we can trust him. Because he is sovereign, we can enjoy him. Because he is sovereign, we can fear. We must fear God. Now we go into the last section. This is verses 16 through 22. We're going to break this down continually. And so this idea of of justice and judgment comes into play in this section as Solomon continues to think about it. Verse 16, he uses this word called moreover. Moreover, the translator is like, "I'm I'm still thinking. I'm still reflecting. I'm still going back on what I just said. He said, and he continues, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So here's number four. Because God is sovereign, we know that justice will be executed. Whether it's in our life or in the final judgment, God will be the one who executes judgment. And in the opening verses, we see a little bit of irritation from Solomon. He uses the word, it's all vanity again, right? He's going back to that, right? Like a real emo, just keeps going back and forth. But he does does so to express irritation and grief. So when he writes the place of justice and the place of righteousness, we can be looking at essentially places where righteousness and justice should be upheld and valued and implemented for the safety and security of people. When you consider justice, we can be looking at a place like a court of law. When you're thinking about a place of righteousness, we could talk about what's supposed to be a healthy home what's supposed to be a healthy church. And he goes on to say that there is wickedness in both. So there's irritation that even though he, is, he has a heart for justice, when it comes to a court of law, justice isn't always handled. It doesn't always happen. 
it is frustrating for many people. Consider those who walk through the adoption process and all of the legalities that are involved in the adoption process, and it doesn't end up happening. Consider, for instance, when a family has, has lost someone, or especially when you read about it in the news, when a family has lost their child because they, they were killed, right? And, and, and the, the, the killers uh, don't get thrown in jail and, and they don't serve the time that they ought to. How do you think the family feels? Like justice hasn't been served. Or when you read stories about individuals who were jailed and were actually innocent of the crimes that they were accused of 30, 40 some years ago. That justice, when it comes to the court of law, there is still wickedness in there. In our own context, I don't know if you knew, right? But oftentimes the valley is known for corruption within the court system. And you hear phrases like someone is in someone's pocket. Right? Solomon is grieved by that. So should we. We should be grieved by that. And he says that in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness as well. Over the last couple of years, how many times have you seen on social media or the news of like pastors coming out on the news because they morally fell in their church and the kind of things that happened in their church or the things that were exposed within their congregants? Right? Like a place of righteousness, the place where God's people are at, it's supposed to be a place of safety and security. Instead, there is wickedness. Solomon is grieved by it, just like many of you are grieved by injustices. Why? Because we are hardwired for injustice. Or excuse me, we're hardwired for justice. We want to see justice executed. When you watch a movie and the good guys win, there's like this sense of like, good, I'm glad. I'm glad this happened, right? Or when we see documentaries or videos on individuals where justice was served, man, there is this like pull in our heartstrings that lead us to, to shout and to cheer and to agree. And man, that was a really, really good movie. Well, it's because we're hardwired for justice. I've spoken to many of you, oftentimes when, when someone has sinned against you, you're like, man, I just really want this to happen to so-and-so. Like, yeah, that's, that's justice misplaced. But nevertheless, <laughs> there is this justice. We are hardwired for it. But the beauty of this text is that Solomon doesn't leave us there. In verse 17, he goes on. <clears throat> I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. God will have the final word on justice. Everything that has broken his law, everything that has stained his world, everything that has damaged his image bearers will be answerable to God. Whether it's in this life or in the final judgment, God is going to be the one who has the last word on judgment. Our confidence isn't in the justice system. It's in the chief justice, Jesus Christ. And so like Habakkuk, our heart aches for the same thing where he writes, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And finally, because God is sovereign, the reality is that we have an appointed time to depart from this world. 
and our mortality should actually bring us to a place of rejoicing. Some of you are like, I don't get that. That also makes me feel uncomfortable. How does my mortality bring me to a place of rejoicing? See, the thing is, many people fear death. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, many people fear death. Many people would even agree with the words of Woody Allen. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) So let's look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing, there's that word, circle it, is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. And he doesn't mean that in a compliment kind of way, right? When you call someone, like, man, you look like a beast. Like nobody's got gains here, right? He's, he's, he's calling us animals, right? <clears throat> Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other, all right? Here's what's going on. Let's, let's break this down because this is the last section. It's the longest one, right? First thing that Solomon tells us is that God is testing us. In other words, life is proving ground for our character and trust in God. How you live your life will reveal what you believe about God. Philip Ryken says it this way, our present existence is a proving ground in the sense of something that demonstrates our true character. One of life's purposes is to examine and ultimately reveal our true relationship to God. So that means what you do matters. There's a little bit more weight to what you do. What you do isn't in vain. He continues by calling, he says, the children of man and and beasts, right? So he's making this, this comparison. And ultimately, he makes this comparison as he's thinking, he's writing, right? He says, there's at least one thing in common that man and animals have, death. That is one thing that we, all, that we at least have in common with animals. Death is inevitable. Death is the great equalizer. And so as a result, it leads him to ask a question. So here it is. Goes on to say, verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all returns. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Solomon isn't questioning whether or not there's life after death. He's posing that question. The reason we know that is because as we continue to read Ecclesiastes, we find out later. But nevertheless, he's posing that question so that we would be forced to think about the brevity of life. To make sure that we're not presuming on more days. To make sure that we're not taking life for granted. In James 4, he says it this way, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Don't take life for granted. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The reason he asks that question, who knows what happens to the Spirit, is to force you and I to think about the brevity of life. To force us to think about whether or not we're actually wasting time. 
And even though it may seem like the concluding question of this section is whether or not there's life after death, the beauty is that you and I, we have the answer to this question because we have the rest of the Bible, not just Ecclesiastes. And so essentially what he is saying is what you do in this life matters. You can almost hear the echo of uh, 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 the movie Gladiator, right? What's his name? Maximus. And he goes on to say, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. That's what every bro wants to have on their man cave, right? Like, okay, like apart from that, the goal, the idea here is what you do in this life matters because there is judgment because we are finite and we all will experience death at one point, there is weight to what we do. Therefore, our labor is not in vain. Because we go back to dust, and that is echo of Genesis, because we go back to dust, once more, the great prophet Morgan Freeman, get busy living. What is it that you are waiting on that you should be doing? The concluding verse goes on to say, actually, let me just read all 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Here it is. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? You can't control when you're going to die or what will happen after you die. And so he's saying, therefore, today, rejoice in your work. Enjoy your life and glorify God. There will be a time to die. That should inform how we live today. Knowing that we will die, we can start making our lives count now. The sovereignty of God gives us the confidence to trust God, to enjoy God, to fear God, to wait on Him, and to make our time count. And so as we wrap this up, when we think about our mortality, like seriously think about it, we often realize that we chase comfort and satisfaction rather than living in the time or season God has given us. Rather than receiving satisfaction from God as a gift, we chase what Solomon ultimately ended up finding out to be vanity, like hedonism, where you're just going to do, live it up and do all of the things only to realize that there's nothing at the end, or nihilism, that there's no meaning of life, or escapism, that you continually try to escape reality because you don't know how to actually confront the seasons of life that are before you. Rather than receiving satisfaction from God as a gift, we chase vanities. We strive after wind. David Gibson says it this way, living well in God's world means recognizing that when it comes to our own lives, we are not many gods, and this is his creation and not ours. For the Christian, though Solomon doesn't touch on the resurrection, for the Christian, we live with the resurrection in mind because we have a resurrected Christ who conquered death. For the Christian, though we weep at death and though we hate death, we also understand that death is a vehicle into the presence of God. Jesus has conquered our greatest fear. The lament and frustration and fear that Solomon has in Ecclesiastes is defeated by Jesus at the cross, in his resurrection, and at his ascension. 
Paul says it this way to Timothy. Uh, now which has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Ecclesiastes is not the last word. It is hard and it is an honest word, but it is, the not, it is not the last word. Jesus is the one who will have the last word. Jesus is the one who has filled our days with joy and gladness, even though we know death is inevitable. Why? Because Jesus has defeated death. Jesus said that everything we do in his name matters. Therefore, because God is sovereign, let us trust him. Let us enjoy him. Let us fear him. Let us live well today and let us glorify him. Although our world is cursed, our Savior has reconciled us to the Father. Jesus entered into human history and took upon all of these sufferings, all of these frustrations, all of these vanities, all of these seasons himself. When you consider the opening of the text in verses one through eight, for Jesus, there was a time to be born and there was a time to die. When it came to Jesus being silent and Jesus speaking, there was a time for that. Peter records it this way. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus entered into the seasons, into the vexation of our life, into the vanity of our life, into the fleetingness of our life. He entered into that season himself and died in the place of sinners for their sin so that they may experience new life. Died, was buried, three days later, rose again through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might have new life. What you do matters. Christian, while this life is a gift from God, let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you trying to be God? What, what are the areas you seek to control? Are you consumed by control? Do you not want to admit that you're trying to control areas? What does the character of your life reveal about what you believe about God? What does it reveal about your relationship to God? The poem of Ecclesiastes tells us all about life, but it also tells us about the brevity of our life. What does your character of your life reveal about your relationship to God? If you've been that individual who is pursuing control, who is trying to be God, let me invite you to confess and repent of your sin. To be humbled by God's grace for you. To lay it before his feet so that you would trust and enjoy God. 
And if you don't know Jesus, I'm thankful that you're here. And here's what Ecclesiastes teaches you about time. There is no time like the present to confess Jesus as Lord, to come and know him through faith and repentance. The time is now for he is ready and willing to pardon all who turn to him in repentance. So church, the sovereignty of God is our comfort in the face of challenge, our comfort as we seek refuge. And though we don't have all of the answers today, God's timing is never late. Let's pray.